Hello and welcome back to How to Be an Independent Country, Scotland's Choices. My name is Connor Matchett. I'm the Deputy Political Editor at The Scotsman. And in this limited podcast series, I've guided you through what might happen if Scotland becomes independent after a second independence referendum and asked whether we can learn anything from other countries who have gone down similar paths. For our final episode, however, we will look at the one big question that remains. What happens if Scotland votes no again for a second time? In 2014, the then SNP leader, Alex Salmond, admitted defeat in the independence referendum at a press conference in Dynamic Earth, just a stone's throw away from Holyrood. Scotland had voted 55% to 45% against following the nationalist leader towards his life's dream and driving political goal. And yet, just hours after the defeat, the SNP began indicating that all was not lost. Just over 2 million people had told Mr Salmond that independence was not their wish, but 1.6 million people had voted in favour of constitutional upheaval and to create a new country, and the SNP leader knew it. In his concession speech, he said that Scotland had, and I quote, by a majority decided not at this stage to become an independent country. And of course, we know what happened next. The SNP, under the new leadership of Nicola Sturgeon, romped to victory in the 2015 general election, almost wiping out all opposition. The First Minister was then re-elected to Holyrood in 2016, albeit no longer with a majority, and that was just months before the UK backed Brexit and voted to leave the European Union. Six years later, the SNP continued to bang the constitutional drum, calling almost annually for another referendum and winning every election held in Scotland since that defeat in 2014. The march towards a referendum, while stuck in stalemate, also feels inevitable for many in Scottish politics. If, or when, Scots get another chance to vote for or against independence, a yes victory is by no means guaranteed. So what happens if Scotland does indeed vote no again? Not many people get the opportunity to vote twice on such an issue, but one region that did were people in Quebec. Two referendums were held, the first in 1980, following the victory of the main political vehicle for sovereignty, the Parti Québécois, which had surprisingly won control of the provincial government in an election in 1976. The result, 40% for and 59% against with a bit of rounding, appeared to settle the question until a return to power in 1994 of the Parti Québécois, following a decade of liberal government. The second referendum was held in 1995, on the back of years of failure to reform the Canadian constitution and with a belief that Quebec's unique situation within Canada would never be fully recognised. Daniel Bellon, Professor of Political Science at McGill University, explains the background. If we look at the modern sovereignty movement in Quebec, uh, there are several uh, milestone as I uh, milestones in terms of what happened, especially in the 1960s. Uh, so there was the creation of a party 
devoted to uh, to sovereignty, for example, in a movement in 1960. But later on, during the decade, there was another uh, movement that was uh, created by René Lévesque, who was a former provincial liberal cabinet minister. And these two organizations merged in 1968 to create the Parti Québécois. And the Parti Québécois, since then, has been the main vehicle for sovereignty as a political project uh, in Quebec. And the Parti Québécois uh, actually took power, formed a government for the first time in 1976 under René Lévesque. Then there was the first referendum in 1980. The PQ lost power in the mid-1980s, but uh, came back to power in the mid-1990s. And we had a second referendum in 1995, which was lost. The PQ stayed in power after that until 2003. And there was quite a few people thinking that we'll have a third referendum, actually, considering how close the results of the second referendum were. But in the end, we didn't. And the PQ uh, lost power in 2003, returned very briefly in 2012 and 14 in the context of a minority government. But now the PQ really has declined. It's the fourth party in the National Assembly in Quebec City. And looking at the current polls, we'll have elections in Quebec in early October. And the PQ is really in survival mode right now. So there is right now a decline of the, the Parti Québécois. And we can say also a decline of sovereignty as an option, although it's still quite strong among Francophones, especially older Francophones. But I would say that certainly over the last 15 years, support for independence or sovereignty, as we call it uh, in Quebec, support for sovereignty is uh, certainly uh, lower than support for the status quo of, of at least staying within Canada, even if that can mean different things, amending the constitution or just keeping the system as it is. Professor Daniel Weinstock the Catherine A. Pearson Chair in Civil Society and Public Policy at Montreal's McGill University also describes the background to the two referendums. Two referendums which occurred at very different sets of circumstances. The first referendum occurred in a kind of a, a spirit of perhaps uh, empirically ungrounded idealism. You know, there's nothing really terribly wrong going on here, but why not have a new country of French speakers in North America? Exaggerating a little bit. The second was in a context which was, I'd say, a lot more fraught where the thought that the Canadian Constitution was basically unamendable and would never be changed in order to meet Quebec's historical, as we say in French, revendication claims, created, I'd say, a much more tense environment. Now, it failed nonetheless. Now, you have to know that the majority of French-speaking, of the expression is hard to translate, what people refer to sometimes as Québécois de souche, People who trace their roots back quite far into Quebec history voted for a sovereignty, but the 10 or 15% of the population that is either Anglophone or a recent immigrant voted quite decidedly no. And on the night of the referendum, a very famous speech, which still echoes through the generations 26 years later, the then premier of Quebec recognized the defeat and said, but why did we lose? We lost because of money and an ethnic vote. The second referendum was much closer to victory for the secessionist or sovereignist movement. 
with the result finishing 49.42% in favour of independence and 50.58% against independence. But why was the referendum another defeat for the likes of the Parti Québécois? Daniel Bilon has this to say. There are different interpretations of that. So some sovereignists blame the fact that, you know, Ottawa spent money during the campaign to bust people in and other organizations uh, from outside of Quebec really played a role in the campaign. Jacques Parizeau, who was premier of Quebec at the time, 1975, made an infamous speech the night of the referendum after the defeat saying that they had lost because of, quote, uh, money and ethnic votes, end of quote. And that was very controversial, of course. It's true that in Quebec, the sovereignty project is strongly associated with the francophone majority in the province. It really depends how you measure, you know, who is francophone or not. But people who have a mother tongue, it's close to French as their mother tongue, it's close to 80%. And then it's higher uh, if you, you know, you think about people who speak French as their main official language and so forth, could be uh, about 85%. So there are different ways to measure, you know, who's francophone. But certainly among Francophones, there was a majority support for sovereignty in 1995, or at least support for the yes vote, considering the question that was asked. And that's also important to consider the question, because people on the other side, on the no side, they said the no almost lost. Huh? There were only 54,000 votes difference between yes and no. You know, it was within like a percentage point between the two in terms of the outcome of the referendum. People on the federal federalist side, people who oppose sovereignty, we call them federalists, they, they said, well, the reason why the no won by such a small margin and the reason why so many people voted yes, it's in part because the question that was asked was so vague. Okay, And so that's a, an argument that's been discussed uh, quite a bit. And actually, in 2000, the federal government enacted the so-called Clarity Act, which is there to really regulate our future referendums, if they ever occur, in Quebec or elsewhere in Canada, but the focus implicitly is really on Quebec. The question will have to be, you know, vetted by Ottawa in a way that there will be some oversight to define also what's a clear victory and what's a clear question. Now, just I will read you what the question, the question that was asked in 1995, the referendum, the English version of it, and you will see that it's a pretty convoluted question. Quote, do you agree that Quebec should become sovereign after having made a formal offer to Canada for a new economic and political partnership within the scope of the bill respecting the future of Quebec and the agreement signed on June 12, 1995? That's the question. So it's a pretty long question, and it's not asked, do you want Quebec to become sovereign? <laughs> no, so it's much more complicated than that. Of course, when you have a complicated question, it leaves a lot of room for ambiguity. There's always an ambiguity in politics. And when you ask a question to people in polls and, and so forth or, or in a referendum, but this question was complex. So there are different interpretations. And still today, like at our institute, when we had the anniversary of the 1995 referendum, the 25th anniversary, we organize a panel and, you know, you could see that there are different narratives about why the no won or why the yes lost. And people who were on the yes side at the time, they still feel that the yes victory was stolen by federalists to misspend the money and so forth. But there are federalists who think that if the question had been more straightforward, it would have been easier for them to win. 
Many books have been written or articles have been written about the referendum, what really happened uh, and what could have happened if the question had been different or the behavior of some of the key actors had been different. But certainly it's a much contested episode in the history of Quebec. So there is not one interpretation that generates a very large consensus. Depending on how you feel about sovereignty, you will have a different understanding typically of what happened. As we heard from Professor Weinstock, the context of the two referendums were also markedly different, with the response to the defeat of the second vote crucial to understanding the trajectory of the sovereignty movement in Quebec. That infamous speech referenced earlier, which blamed money and ethnic votes for the failure to win for the Parti Québécois, sparked a change in the approach to the question of sovereignty in the province. Professor Weinstock explains... It's had a, a determinative effect. I would say short-term and long-term. I'm a pragmatic anti-secessionist in the sense that I have no objection of principle to the idea of Quebec becoming a country, but I think it would be a bad idea given Quebec's situation in North America. But I am very much an anti-nationalist in the sense that, uh, I th- or an anti um, sort of ethnocultural nationalist in the sense that, you know, I think that if Quebec were to become a sovereign country, it'd be very important. And this is something that I think was understood by successive generations of secessionists, that uh, it would have to be an open and inclusive nationalism that was the uh, vehicle for secession. And, you know, one of the things that's been distinctive of the secessionist movement, as opposed to the nationalist movement that we have now, the non-secessionist nationalist movement, is that you're a Quebecer if you live on the territory and speak French. Full stop. That was pretty much a direct quote from René Lévesque, who was the, the, the sort of sacred figure of the secessionist movement. His government was very, very generous with immigrants and both invited them to maintain a lot of their sort of cultural specificities while sort of making the transition towards French as uh, their language of everyday sort of business and education and as easy as possible. In the short term, after the, that 1995 speech, I think there was a real soul searching on the part of people within especially the party that was at that point the vehicle for independence, the Parti Québécois, which, just to give you a little bit of historical context, is quite likely about to be wiped out electorally in the next election. But at the time, it was one of the two main parties, the other one being the Federalist Liberal Party. There was a lot of soul-searching amongst people who said, maybe this beast sort of was within us all the time. You know, Maybe we weren't as exempt from kind of ethnocultural nationalism as we thought we were. And so in the short term, there was a kind of a veering towards, I hesitate to use left-right to talk about these things, but towards a very, an even more open kind of nationalism that had been the case before. So the short-term effects are, oh my gosh, we have to open ourselves up even more than we had before. But the longer-term effects, which are really presently dominant within Quebec political discourse and practice, was amongst people who said, look, maybe it was just a mistake at the outset to denationalize the secessionist movement. Obviously, at the end of the day, if secessionism is, is secession is going to occur, and even if the promotion of Quebec's interests within the Federation is going to occur, it's not going to be on the back of immigrants and Anglophones. It's going to be because the historical majority, self-consciously identifying itself as the historical majority, 
you know, wants either greater affirmation within the Federation or secession. And so the nationalist movement has to be recreated, according to this longer term effect, as a movement principally of an ethnocultural majority with long historical roots in Quebec. And so the idea that the only thing that matters is language is now out the door, right? Huge controversies over the course of the last 20 years over religion, which have been presented falsely by some people as being, oh, we want Quebec to be a secular society. But what they really are is kind of uh, establishing a hierarchy between the omnipresent Catholic landscape, which is everywhere in Quebec from its historical roots, which were really extremely Catholic, uh, creating a hierarchy between Catholic symbols, what have you, street names, you name it. But also an idea of Catholicism as perhaps not a religion that people necessarily believe in, but as an identity on the one hand, which should have pride of place, according to this view, in the public arena. And all other religions, of course, chief amongst them Islam, which should be beaten back. And now more broadly, even immigration as a whole and the reaffirmation of this thicker sort of we, the denial of which is now seen by the leaders of the movement as having been a historical mistake, is really the, this is where we are right now. Uh, This is where we are. And I think it is a a direct effect of those two defeats, right? We were never going to win by pretending that this wasn't about a we, which is kind of like narrowly ethnoculturally defined. Support for independence in Scotland has stayed at roughly the same level as the 2014 referendum result for now almost eight full years. Polling demonstrates no significant shift either in favour of the yes movement or the no movement, but the push for a second referendum continues. In Quebec, Did the failed second referendum see the collapse of sovereignty as a political movement? When you look at polling data, it's quite uh, interesting because it has fluctuated over time since that referendum. So I would say that, yeah, now support for sovereignty in Quebec is certainly lower than it used to be. But if you look at what happened immediately after the referendum, support for sovereignty was strong. You look at the polls, say, in August 1996, support for sovereignty was above 52%. So I think it was still strong. And that's why people, after the second referendum, because it was such a, a tight outcome and it was so contested, that people thought that there will be another referendum sooner rather than later. But there was the idea for Lucien Bouchard, who was premier at the time, that it was important a rhetoric or an expression that other PQ politicians used to have the winning conditions. Wait until the winning conditions are there to have a third referendum. And there was some hope in the sense that support for sovereignty after that, after 1996 actually declined in Quebec for a while, but there was what we call the sponsorship scandal at the federal level that involved the the activities of the Quebec government to promote Canadian unity in Quebec, to promote national unity in Quebec, and there was corruption involved, and there was a major federal inquiry about this, and that actually boosted support for sovereignty around the year 2005. But since then, support for sovereignty has remained quite low. And currently, the, you know, if you take a recent Leger poll from early 2022, support for sovereignty is at around, you know, 40%, 60% against. But among Francophones, it is higher, of course. So we have to understand that. It's also higher among older Francophones. Support for sovereignty is lower among younger Francophones than older Francophones right now. 
it's not a huge gap, but it's, it's certainly a trend that we have witnessed over time. And what is the politics of Quebec today in the terms of the major parties? Well, the PQ was really a social democratic party in the 1970s. And I would say most of the 1980s and even 1990s, early 2000. I think that there was a strong kind of left wing, uh, wing of the Parti Québécois. But some of these people have left and they are now with Quebec Solidaire. And the Parti Québécois has changed its orientation since the late 2000, and especially when they were in power in 2012 to 14, where they really focus on secularism and immigration and the so-called Charter of Quebec Values. And I think that has alienated uh, quite a few people on the left. And so I think that the party now is much less associated with social democracy than it used to be, the PQ. And Quebec Solidaire is the vehicle for that left-wing vision. There were some talks about merging these two sovereignist parties, the PQ and Quebec Solidaire, but in the end, uh, it didn't work. And so there are clearly divisions within the sovereignist camp uh, in Quebec today. And this camp has always been divided since 1960s, but for a long time, especially under René Lévesque, and even after that, under uh, some of its other leaders like Jacques Parizeau, the, the party was quite unified. But today it has lost uh, quite a few members and popular support. And on the left, Quebec Solidaire, I think, is the, the kind of vehicle for sovereignty now, the main vehicle for sovereignty. But there are also uh, people who support sovereignty, but they vote for the current governing party in Quebec, Coalition Avenir Quebec. About a third of people who vote for that party, they support uh, sovereignty. Right. But they vote for a party that is not supporting sovereignty, but they think that in the long run, it might still support it or change course. Or also they support it because it, it, it has a very strong nationalist agenda focusing on Quebec autonomy, not sovereignty, but autonomy. And you have quite a few people who were with the Parti Québécois before, like the current premier of Quebec, François Legault, who were with the Parti Québécois. François Legault is a former cabinet minister of the Parti Québécois. And now he's with this coalition of former sovereignists or sovereignists and federalists who are nationalists, but they stop short of promoting sovereignty as a party. And this party has sucked the air out for, for the PQ in a way, because many nationalists and even people in the past who support the PQ are now voting for François Legault and his party. And so that's part of this existential crisis at the PQ right now. And when you look at the polls, what will happen in early October, you could see projections suggest that they might keep only a few seats, if any. So uh, that is a major challenge in terms of, you know, the future of the PQ. But the PQ and sovereignty are two distinct things, although the PQ has been this vehicle for sovereignty, the main vehicle for sovereignty for a long time. The death of the PQ will not necessarily mean the end of sovereignty as a project, even if right now it's not as popular as it was, say, in the mid-1990s or before. I think it's become very clear to everybody that referendums on secession are very risky things, that even amongst secessionists, the idea of having a third failed referendum within living memory, really, of a lot of people would probably bury the project for, well, forever. And thus, that the idea of another referendum could only really be envisaged if winning conditions were in place, to use the expression that has been quite current. The present government of Quebec, which is going to win a re-election in a few months by what looks to be 
maybe the largest majority in the history of Quebec, is a nationalist but decidedly non-secessionist party. It came to power by basically bringing together nationalists of all kinds of political stripe, left, right, secessionist, non-secessionist, basically saying, look, we learned lessons about these two referenda and about their dangers. Let's just put the idea of secession, outright secession, on the back burner, or even off the off the stove entirely and see how much we can get in terms of powers within the Canadian Federation. And the answer seems to be actually quite a lot. Perhaps then, those pushing for Quebec's independence had simply misread the electorate's wish for a nationalist, but not secessionist, electoral force. Professor Weinstock describes what happened. The political genius of this government has been to realize that Quebecers are nationalists, right? That the idea of, you know, maybe half of French-Canadian Quebecers who, all things considered, would probably prefer having their own country, half who still have maybe atavistic uh, identification with a kind of a vision of Canada. After all, Quebec is the historical result of an older idea, which is that of la nation canadienne française, right? Which includes people not just in Quebec, but in Ontario, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and into the Maritimes, right? So the idea that Canada, not just Quebec, but Canada, is something that belongs equally to us, is something that especially older Quebecers are still perhaps connected to, and maybe some people who don't want secession just because they think it would be bad for the economy or it would be messy or divisive, which it would be, you know, probably all those things. But that if you if you take secession off the table and say, hey, you know, let's try to be as self-governing as possible within the Federation, you have an absolutely can't-miss, you know, kind of political formula, which has put all of the other parties on the back foot. Parti Québécois is now saddled with the secessionist option, which nobody seems to want, and it doesn't really have anything else to offer in terms of the devolution agenda. The Liberals, you know, who are the Federalist Party, are seen as not having kind of like, you know, enough of a a sensitivity to nationalist claims. And so, though they still look like they're going to be the official opposition in the next election, it'll be only on the basis of the fact that they're still dominant in largely Anglophone and some immigrant ridings. But they'll be trounced. They've almost disappeared as a force amongst French Canadians, which is not a recipe for success in Quebec. You have a sort of an upstart left-wing secessionist party called Quebec Solidaire, which um, seems to be in a state of perpetual political adolescence. They actually had a something of a, of a breakthrough in the last election, 10 seats out of 125 from one, which is, you know, a tenfold increase. And, you know, they have some very, they have a very charismatic young leader, but they seem not to be able to sort of throw over student radicalism, which was really at the impetus of the party. And so every once in a while, they'll just put their foot massively in their mouths and make a lot of people realize, I can't, you know, they're just not ready for prime time. So we have this sort of ideologically nondescript party that people on the center left and people on the center right kind of feel, yeah, I can vote for them on the basis of their socioeconomic policies, but who have basically just covered the entire landscape in terms of their uh, affirmation of nationalism, of the idea that, hey, you know, we're going to do everything we can to reclaim powers from the rest of Canada and to affirm the historical kind of importance of the historical majority, which had been for too long sort of ignored, both by, of course, the federal government, which is the bogeyman, but also perhaps by elements of the secessionist movement itself. (laughs) 
One of the biggest challenges for the opposition in Scotland is of course moving the conversation beyond the constitution and back towards domestic politics. This is particularly true for the Scottish Labour Party who, under Anna Sawa, have been pushing the idea that independence and ideals of national identity should be bottom of the priority pile. In Quebec, albeit after that second referendum, with the CAQ, the province has a nationalist but not pro-secessionist party in a position of relative dominance. So how did they do it? Daniel Billon explains. They emphasize what you know, people we used to call French Canadians, but Francophone Quebecers, what they want. It's a, the CQ is, a, you know, on some issues, it's quite centrist, but it's more of a center-right party in many ways. And they have really emphasized issues that concern Francophones, especially older Francophones. It's a party that's quite pragmatic in terms of looking at the polls and what the majority of Francophones, especially older Francophones, want, and then acting upon that. And we've seen a lot of media coverage about, you know, religious accommodations in Quebec and the idea that there is the French is declining in Montreal. And so they have really embraced uh, secularism and a strong approach to protection of French language, which led to the uh, adoption of controversial policies, at least controversial among Anglophones and Allophones and people outside of Quebec, but also some Francophones. So Bill uh, 21 on secularism, which is modeled in part on what is done in France about banning religious symbols for people uh, working in, in some areas of the public sector, people in position of authority, and also more recently Bill 96 to protect the French language. But that has been criticized extensively by people on the Anglophone and also Allophone side. And so it's a party that has captured, I think, the imagination of nationalists in Quebec. And they are, this party has been quite instrumental in the decline of the Parti Québécois because many of the issues that the Parti Québécois really, in the end, embraced are things that, apart from sovereignty, that, that the, the CAQ is, is doing right now. You know, sovereignists on the left, they are more inclined to vote for Quebec Solidaire. So for the Parti Québécois, it's a very, very hard situation where you have a very strong, yeah, you talk about devolution, you know, more powers. That's what Legault says. Now he wants more power in immigration policy, right? And going to Ottawa and asking for always more powers, right? And this is something that the, the PQ traditionally has done. Even when they don't talk necessarily about having a referendum anytime soon, they always want more powers from Ottawa. And this is what François Legault is doing and saying. So that puts the PQ in a very, very difficult situation. Recently, there is a, you know, a, a former PQ cabinet minister who was there under uh, Pauline Marois, Bernard Drinville, who's very well known in Quebec, very well known media personality. And now he's running for the CAQ at the next uh, provincial elections. So they are basically, you know, removing the carpet under the PQ's feet. <laughs> and it's very hard for the PQ in that context to remain viable electorally. Again, it's not about sovereignty per se, because there are people who support sovereignty within the CAQ, Quebec Solidaire and beyond, but it's about the future of the Parti Québécois itself, uh, which doesn't appeal that much to younger voters. If you told Scots today that the SNP could be wiped out and replaced by a centre-right, pro-devolutionist party, they would likely consider you on the wind-up. But that is what happened in Quebec, despite the continued support for the idea of sovereignty. What happened then to the Parti Québécois, a political force once dominant, but now on the brink of extinction? I 
think that what has happened, the ability of the present, what is called the Coalition Avenir Québec, you know, the Coalition for the Future of Quebec, which actually was a coalition. There are two parties that sort of did coalesce to form this party. The last election that it lost, right, it almost was annihilated. So the, the idea that 10 years later, however many years later, it is now... All reigning almost without opposition is enough to give you kind of political whiplash. It's very surprising. Now, some of it just has to do with the sort of these deeper forces, right? That uh, the Parti Québécois found itself in this strange position of having secession as Article One of its charter, right? It's front and center. It is its raison d'etre. But of having to campaign in successive elections by saying, don't worry, we won't call a referendum until our second mandate, right? So you have a party that's forced to campaign, in effect, against its own raison d'etre, which is a tricky proposition. It also had a succession of very, very poor leaders. The last premier of Parti Québécois, Pauline Marois, who was premier of a minority government about a decade ago, maybe even a little bit less. She was part of the, the, the founding sort of old guard of the Parti Québécois, very, you know, well thought of woman. When she stepped down after she lost the next election, had she been replaced by someone else? Who knows? In effect, what ended up happening, and this is sort of interesting, so I'll just throw it in, the richest family in Quebec, Péladoux, right, who own everything. The internet connection that, that I'm speaking to you on is it, owned by the Péladoux. They own, more importantly, all of the most widely read and widely listened to media outlets in Quebec. And their columnists in especially their, their flagship paper, the Journal de Montréal, have been basically, as far as, you know, if you were just to look at what they write and what the government does, writing government policy for the last four or five years since the... So the scion, I've never known how to pronounce that word, of the family, Pierre-Carl Pelado, decided that he wanted to jump into politics out of nowhere. He was a businessman. Everybody knew that he was, you know, kind of that he had sovereignist leanings, but he'd also had Marxist leanings in his youth. He actually changed his name officially such that the Carl in his middle name is spelled with a K rather than a C. Kind of an interesting but really odd figure, you know, uh, on a personal level. He did run uh, under the Parti Québécois banner. And when Pauline Marois, this older woman, the last Parti Québécois premier, stepped down, there was this huge, unbelievably, in my view, misguided surge of preference for this untried, untested guy to become leader of the party, which he became and was terrible, you know, as you would predict, and ultimately stepped down in the middle of nowhere for personal reasons, uh, or it is claimed for personal reasons. And, and that really was, you know, you needed someone after the defeat, the, you know, the defeat of their last government, who could be really a steady set of hands. And what you got was the opposite. So you had both sort of deep reasons to do with their lack of a raison d'etre, right? And more superficial reasons to do just with the bungling nature of the successive leaders that they picked after she left, which, you know, Combined, I can't imagine the Scottish nationalists finding themselves in that set of circumstances. The similarities between the pro-sovereignty movement in Quebec and the pro-independence movement in Scotland have significant and crucial demographic differences. This makes the post-referendum success of the Parti Québécois harder to compare to the potential future of the SNP. In Scotland, the SNP's base is younger, 
more urban and more centre-left than the more traditional, more rural, French Catholic base for the Quebecois sovereignty movement. Daniel Weinstock explains more. Basically, there are two Quebecs, and people try to paper this over, but I think it's undeniable, right? Montreal is more than perhaps any other place that I know of. You know, there are pockets of immigration in different places, and, and, you know, it's not completely insignificant. But essentially, immigration is Montreal, and Montreal is immigration. The Anglophone community is also highly concentrated in Montreal. And so Montreal is just a very different place. Montreal, which is, depending on how you count it, the island itself is... Uh, just over 2 million people. The greater Montreal area is more like 4 million people. But, you know, it, it could be argued that a lot of uh, what is going on is about taming Montreal as a place where uh, people speak all kinds of languages, sometimes in the same sentence. I mean, I look at my kids, you know, my, my youngest daughter. If there were a referendum, I wouldn't be surprised if she if she voted yes. But, you know, her identity and her friends is this complete sort of mishmash with the way they speak, the music they listen to, the movies they go to. The idea, for example, of going to see a movie uh, dubbed in French, right, uh, an, an English movie dubbed in French, would strike her and her friends as just completely bizarre, you know, even though they, they speak French to one another. The vision of Quebec as kind of this traditionally, you know, maybe no longer sort of um, Catholics who, who, who believe, but, but sort of still trace their identity back to this Catholic past, very ethnoculturally defined, is very distasteful to them. And so they're much more attracted by this other party, Quebec Solidaire, which has really tried to be the party of inclusion. If you look at support for sovereignty today, the pyramid of ages is, is turned over. The older up you go, the higher the support for sovereignty. My daughter's cohort barely registers a heartbeat. So we've had legislation on the wearing of religious signs, read hijabs by people in certain areas of the public sector, uh, a lot of support outside of Montreal and amongst older generations. Inside Montreal, again, amongst the generation like my daughter's, no support whatsoever. If I had a worry, you know, thinking of the, the, the this party sort of looking down the line, I think that's what's going to end up catching up to them. I think you have to understand about Quebec, and, and you know, this might be different from Scotland, is... Um, you know, potted history, uh, the French came, took over, then the English came, kicked the French butts. The French authorities went back to France, leaving French colonists, very small number of people here under English rule. The Catholic Church basically became the dominant force politically, socially, for this small, embattled colonist with no more political power at all, given the fact that the French had been defeated and the French uh, authorities went home. And what did they do? They made babies on a scale which is like up there in, you know, uh, so, you know, families up until the 1940s, 1950s, families of 15, 12, 10, 12, 15 kids were not uncommon. It's referred to as la revanche des berceaux, the revenge of the cradles, right, that we got beat. But basically, we sort of established our political weight by just making generation after generation after generation after generation for like 200 years, just a, you know, pardon the expression, a crap load of babies. So that by the time you get to the 1960s, women in Quebec start realizing, hey, we're not baby factories. You know, they start having families that are on, you know, uh, on or below the sort of North American Western average. The effect is, is that even today, the proportion of Quebecers who can trace their origins back to those founding families is surprisingly high. 
right? Take a city like Toronto. Toronto is now a city where the majority of people who live in Toronto were not born in Canada. Greater Toronto is 6 million people, fourth largest urban sort of conurbation in North America after New York, LA, and Chicago. It is a place that no longer belongs to anyone because the majority of people are from somewhere else. It's a remarkable kind of thing and experiment in a way, which is working, you know, surprisingly well. Quebec is far from there, right? Quebec is far from there because of the continued weight, demographic weight. You know, people talk about it's at a certain point, the echo effect, but this is echo after echo after echo of those sort of founding generations. This has seen a shift in the political approach of parties in Quebec, with a focus on issues such as immigration policy wrapped into demands for more devolution. It is nationalism, but it's not how Scots might recognise it. French Canadians are no longer making families of 10, 15 babies. They're making families of one or two babies. And so immigration is becoming the big issue, right? So Canada is a country of immigration. The federal government, which is in principle responsible for immigration, has argued, and I think quite sensibly, that uh, Canada needs to increase its population base and that we should massively ramp up our selective immigration, the people that we take in because we you know, think that they have the money or the particular aptitudes or whatever to fill a particular role. So we take in about 250,000 a year now. And according to some projections, we should move that up to four or even 500,000 a year. Uh, unsurprisingly, the big campaign uh, war horse that the government here in Quebec has decided to climb on is to say, we need to repatriate powers over immigration from the federal government. Quebec already has some powers in immigration. We actually have to, for people who who plan to move to Quebec when they arrive, we have our own point system that obviously, as you would imagine, scores language skills very highly. But uh, Legault is arguing, I think with no empirical basis, that this is not enough. Actually, in a province where 94% of the population are fluent in French, brandish the specter of Louisianification being something that Quebec, uh, you know, that was breathing down Quebec's throat, if we didn't reclaim immigration powers in toto from the federal government. There's no way that the federal government is going to cede these powers, and Trudeau has already made that clear. But again, a very winning proposition, right? Give this back to us. It's ours. It's something that is a very popular thing. You know, it's a very effective thing because people are inclined to want more rather than less, right? Should we have power over immigration? Well, sure. Why not? You know? Unsurprisingly, in virtue of the things that I've told you, immigration has become the war horse of the next election. Both Professor Weinstock and Professor Billon argue that the other aspect of difference between Scotland and Quebec is the comparative lack of a true Boris Johnson-style bogeyman. Here's Daniel Billon. I think that Pierre Trudeau, the father of Justin, was a very centralizing figure within Canada and was taking on Quebec nationalists in a way that was quite perceived by many nationalists as being arrogant and really tough towards Quebec. 
Justin Trudeau, his son, is a different figure, much more, you know, uh, it's true that the Liberal Party of Canada is more centralizing than the Conservative Party of Canada. And I think that sovereignists or nationalists in Quebec, typically, they tend to be more supportive or they like the, the Conservatives in terms of what they say about federalism. The Conservatives embrace a more decentralized vision of the country than the liberals typically. But in Ottawa, of course, as you know, since the early 1990s, we have a nationalist party, which is the Bloc Québécois, which is distinct from the PQ, but it is aligned with it. And the Bloc Québécois is a party that at some point even uh, formed the official opposition in Ottawa. And since then, that it's up and down movements in terms of number of seats. But it has returned quite strongly to the front stage in 2019 at the federal elections, and it still have a, a lot of um, MPs, nearly on par with the Liberals in Quebec. And so the Bloc Québécois really criticizes the federal government, supports, of course, in the end, sovereignty of Quebec, but they say sovereignty is something we'll decide among Quebecers with another referendum later on, probably. But they are there in Ottawa to defend the positions of Quebec regarding provincial autonomy. And so right now, the Bloc Québécois is really supporting the decentralizing agenda that François Legault has embraced at the provincial level, even if historically the Bloc is closely aligned to the PQ. But because the PQ is not doing so well, you see often, at least implicitly, an alignment between the CEQ at the provincial level and what Yves-François Blanchet, the leader of the Bloc Québécois, says in Parliament in Ottawa, in the House of Commons. And so the conservatives uh, are not very strong in Quebec at the federal level, nor at the provincial level, but they defend a more decentralizing vision of the country. And so I think that uh, when the conservatives are in power, they are more inclined to say yes to, you know, embrace decentralization than the liberals are. But right now, you know, Justin Trudeau is, is not... There are a lot of people in Quebec who don't like him. He's not super popular in Quebec. He has his base here, of course. They have quite a few uh, MPs, especially in the Montreal area. And it's very popular among Anglophones and Allophones. And, and there is a Francophone support for the Federal Liberal Party. And so the, the, the Conservatives try to gain more ground. And during the last federal elections, François Legault explicitly supported the Conservatives uh, and said that, you know, basically suggested it would be better for Quebec if the Conservatives rather than the Liberals were in power in Ottawa. But in the end, Quebecers, you know, they, they didn't follow his advice. And the Conservatives, uh, you know, remain with about what, 10 seats, which is out of 78. It's, it's, it's quite tiny in terms of the representation of Quebec in the House of Commons. Daniel Weinstock agrees that the leadership at the heart of federal Canada is not as easy a target for the pro-secessionist voices. When you go down below the rhetoric of Ottawa, you know, sort of Ottawa demonization, intergovernmental affairs work surprisingly well. One of the cries of the nationalist movement has been that Canada is actually an asymmetric feder federation, which is not untrue, right? Where you have one province that happens to be the, the home of a, of a distinct nation, whereas the other provinces are more kind of like administrative. Look at Saskatchewan. It's two straight lines that have basically been carved through fields of, of wheat, you know, uh, I don't think anybody would claim that there was a Saskatchewanian nation, but that this isn't reflected in the Constitution. The Constitution is 10 equal provinces. Now, in fact, everybody knows that 
That's not the way the Federation works. The Federation works as an asymmetric Federation. Talk to any civil servant sufficiently high up in the food chain, and they'll tell you that whenever there's an intergovernmental meeting, there are basically two things going on. There's federal government talking with Quebec, and there's the federal government talking with the other provinces. And it's worked surprisingly well. It's worked surprisingly well for two reasons. One is that the proportion of prime ministers of Canada who have been from Quebec, right, is shockingly, you know, Quebec prime ministers have, uh, I'd have to do the math, but Pierre-Elie Trudeau, uh, Jean Chrétien, across parties, Brian Mulroney of the Conservative Party, and now uh, Justin Trudeau, right? So Quebecers have dominated the federal political scene for the majority of the years that we're talking about. And so it's not as if Justin Trudeau or Brian Mulroney or Jean Chrétien or Pierre-Elie Trudeau or whoever is seen as a kind of a foreign, in the way that maybe Boris Johnson is in Scotland. The second thing is, perhaps more than the British uh, prime ministers that I've known of, Quebec still has 25% of the seats, give or take. And so being too bullshy, you know, on we're going to face down those Quebec nationalists is not really good politics, right, for federal politicians. They want to be elected here. And so even with respect to some of the uh, laws that have been passed by this government that are, you know, not just arguably, but actually in violation of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms that's enshrined in our federal constitution, the laws that could only be propped up by the fact that the provincial government has used this tool called the Notwithstanding Clause in our constitution, which allows any legislature to have laws that are in force, regardless, notwithstanding their compatibility or not with certain clauses in the, in the charter, they've been very meek in sort of saying, well, we won't stand for this, right? So there's tons of other things that, you know, you can use in order to sort of pump up the sort of nationalist fervor here. But kind of, the you know, the Ottawa bogeyman is maybe a tougher sell, at least for those two reasons that they are in the UK with respect to, say, Boris. Daniel Belon adds that the approach from the Canadian government also influenced how the politics of Quebec developed post-second referendum. So what we had in, in Canada in the late 1990s, early 2000, we had Jean Chrétien, who was the prime minister. And Jean Chrétien was really very close to and a former cabinet minister of Pierre uh, Trudeau. And so his, his approach to Quebec nationalism was rather tough. And that's why they went towards the, the Clarity Act, which was engineered by Stéphane Dion, a Quebec political scientist who then became um, a liberal politician in Ottawa. And the Clarity Act is not about sending an olive branch to Quebec. It's about setting rules and saying next, next time if there is a referendum, the question will have to be clear and we'll have, the federal government will be able to monitor this and see decide whether the, the result, you know, what constitutes a legitimate majority and so forth. So so I think that under the liberals, so under Jean Chrétien, I don't think that you can say that there was a strong attempt to appease the PQ in a sense. I would say that under uh, Stephen Harper, who was prime minister from 2006 to 2015, there was a mood of, you know, having a more decentralizing approach to federalism. But at the time in Quebec, it was mostly a, a liberal government in power. And they 
you know, under Jean Charest and later Philippe Couillard, the liberals were, they move away from some of the nationalism that, that was strong within the Liberal Party of Quebec during the 1960s, for example, during the Quiet Revolution. So the Liberal Party of Quebec has become less nationalistic over time, I would say, over the last 20 years. Now they try to, <laughs> to go back to this, uh, to nationalism under their current leader, Dominique Anglade, but they poll very poorly among Francophones right now. Uh, and they try to salvage their base uh, in Montreal, especially among Anglophones and Allophones. And even there, it's not going so well. You know, you have to understand that Montreal is a place where the CAQ, the Coalition Avenir Québec, is not doing well in terms of seats. They only have two seats on the island of Montreal. Now they want to win more seats. But there is a kind of divide or tension between Montreal, where you have, of course, uh, way more immigrants living there and, and fewer Francophones proportionally. And then the, the, and I will include maybe some suburbs of Montreal, like Laval as part of that. And then you have the rest of Quebec, which is heavily francophone and where the CEQ is really, really dominant overall. Key to highlight for Professor Weinstock, however, are the differences between Scotland and Quebec when searching for lessons ahead of a prospective second referendum. There are a couple of things which I think make the Scottish situation quite different. I actually read the manifesto, you know, in the last referendum. So it seems to me that Scotland doesn't have, to the same degree that Quebec has, this kind of either religiously or linguistically based kind of ethnocultural thing that it could sort of fall back into. So there isn't the equivalent of French as a kind of an identity marker. I think that, you know, Catholicism is a much more powerful kind of, even for people who no longer go to church or, you know, whatever, it has marked people's identities more than perhaps other religions have, right? So in a way, Scotland is saved, my view from the outside. Two-second potted sort of uh, summary of the discussion is two attempts at founding a state failed, no appetite for doing a third. And so what happens? The nationalist movement turns inwards, right? In this slightly, in my view, debased kind of way, the sort of more affirmative, uh, open, inclusive vision of what Quebec could be is replaced by this more kind of suspicious, inward-looking nationalism. For reasons that have to do with history, I'm not sure that Quebec, uh, that Scotland has that potentiality to the same degree that Quebec has. I hope it doesn't, because that is, I would say, the one thing. Were there to be a second referendum and were this, the referendum to fail, the bitterness, right, the politics of bitterness I don't know what the vehicle for that politics of bitterness might be in Scotland, but, you know, I think that the psychological potential for it would be there. And the first lesson for, for I don't know, for progressives, for people who are even not, you know, nationalist progressives, people who want Scotland, you know, I mean, that, that, the vision of in the manifesto that I read is very much a sort of a, a shiny, sunny, black, brown, you know, whatever, you're Scott. His warning for Scots is to be careful about who you listen to. And, as he puts it, beware the politics of bitterness. If there were a failed second referendum, although I don't understand, I don't know enough about Scotland to know what form it might take, it would take a very different form than obviously what has taken place here because of the absence of the language thing and the sort of very narrow ethnocultural thing rooted to the particular demography and religion that we've had here. Beware of the politics of bitterness. Beware of the, of the politics of people who start looking for scapegoats. Start taking steps now, even as you prepare, you know, for perhaps a successful referendum, prepare for what might happen if not. Like, have, a, have a story that would sort of forestall that. My Scottish friends tell me that, you know, 
if we had like, you know, what Quebec has within the Canadian Federation, the Federation, it's not Devo Max, it's Devo Max, 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 right? It's uh, we get 50% of our taxes go directly to Quebec City. So it doesn't go by Ottawa, 50% goes straight to Quebec City. And then a lot of it that goes to Ottawa comes back to us because of transfer payments. So just that, just that, you know, there's tons of institutional space here for very significant self-determination program, leaving aside the question of whether you actually have a seat at the UN. I think that a missed opportunity that the referendums involved was not realizing that, as this government has, but also not realizing that the kind of open, sunny, inclusive, affirmative, nationalist affirmative vision of, of Quebec nationalism that was associated with the Sovereignist Project could also have been associated with a sort of within Canada kind of dialogue between French Canadians, Anglophones, immigrants. Whereas now we're really in a situation where Anglophones and uh, I'm a Francophone by mother tongue. So despite the fact that, uh, you know, Anglophones like my wife, you know, are, are seen as the enemy and presented as the enemy. And so not a healthy environment to think about a kind of an inclusive intra-Canadian affirmative project. So that's really something to to look towards as the two scenarios that might emerge from another referendum in Scotland are contemplated. The lessons from Quebec are that the politics of a country or province that has focused on the question of independence for decades can rapidly change in the face of a second referendum. However, caution must be taken from the Quebec case. The demographics of the province and the political factors pushing individuals and groups to vote in certain ways cannot be understood as being the same as Scotland. In fact, in many ways, Scotland's own demographic background to the independence question is flipped, with it being driven by younger voters than their equivalents in Quebec. For the SNP, however, Quebec poses an existential warning. Win or risk losing your raison d'etre and your political power. Such a defeat particularly for Nicola Sturgeon, would be potentially cataclysmic in terms of the possibility for wide-ranging political change in Scotland. This episode marks the end of this limited podcast series on Scottish independence. Over the last six weeks, we have examined several thorny topics of debate, including currency, borders, democracy, health, foreign policy, And of course, what happens if Scotland votes no for a second time? I hope the podcast has demonstrated to you that there are no easy answers to the questions facing voters at a potential second independence referendum. Anybody claiming that difficult questions for the SNP have simple answers which make voting either yes or no blindingly obvious is almost certainly lying to you. The question of independence and whether it is right for Scotland is not something that can be answered by a podcast series, politicians or academics. In truth, we will only ever know the correct answers if the people of Scotland decide to make independence a reality and not a moment before. Thank you very much for listening, particularly if you have listened to every episode. Please do rate the podcast to help others find it and do not hesitate to share it online if you think it is worth more people tuning in. You can find out more about this series each week in Saturday's edition of The Scotsman and online at scotsman.com. 
How to Be an Independent Country, Scotland's Choices, was produced and hosted by me, Connor Matchett, and is edited by Kelly Crichton. <laughs>